On October 21st, 1966, in a small Welsh village known as Abervan, there was a storm unlike any that had come through before. That morning, families went through their normal routines. Many of the men went off to work at the coal mines in the hills. Mothers bundled their children up to head to school. None of them knew that the storm about to come would far exceed the tempest of weather that they saw outside. Because this was a coal mining town, all the hills above the villages had on them mounds of dirt and waste that was collected from the coal mining process. Some of these mounds, known as coal tips, were over 100 feet tall. At 9.15 that morning, as the children in the primary school down below were getting ready to get about their day, and after days of an unending storm and rain, one of the tips became so saturated that it poured down the hillside as an avalanche. It took out two farms in its wake, and it directly hit Pantglass Junior School, instantly killing five teachers and 109 children. All told, 144 people died that day, 116 of them children, most between the ages of seven and 10. Now, I don't usually recommend TV shows, but the movie or the, the series The Crown had an episode on this. And if you're unfamiliar with this event, watch that episode. Uh, I dare you not to weep. This was an amazingly horrific circumstance. In the days that followed, the small village of roughly 5,000 people attempted to mourn the loss of an entire generation. A mass funeral was conducted in which one mother and 81 children were laid to rest all at once. Wreaths and posies were sent from around Britain and Europe, and they were laid in the sign of a cross on the hillside. 10,000 people gathered in this village of 5,000. They gathered at these graves and sang together in mourning. They sang the hymn written by Charles Wesley entitled, Jesu, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. The first stanza goes like this. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. You can still go on even YouTube and find old documentaries that capture the mournful tune of these 10,000 people crying out in agony and mourning to their God. The disaster had occurred one day before the half-term break. If it had happened one hour earlier, six hours later, one day later, far less would have died, especially the children in the school. This was a pain that even now, 54 years later, many in that village still struggle with. In the midst of a storm that would not abate, the words of Charles Wesley were used to proclaim a truth that something greater than even the chaotic power of death exists. And behind this hymn lays the story that we have before us today in Mark, that of Jesus calming the raging storm. It's a simple story that we read today but it carries huge weight. 
It portrays the heart of every man, woman, or child who has been overcome by the trials and cares of this world at one time or another, feeling as though the waves of life, the tempest of suffering, will overcome us. In our me-driven culture, where it's second nature to interpret the Bible with a focus on ourselves rather than Christ, I worry, though, that the power of this story has been sucked out and minimized to a simple meme that Jesus will calm whatever psychological frustration we find ourselves in. But as we will see today, the story carries with it so much more hope than a mere psychological encouragement when we're having a bad day. It carries with it the hope of resurrection from death, the hope of order conquering chaos, the hope that one day all the nightmarish disorder that we see in the world will be done away with and vanquished to mankind's sinful history. It shows us that God is bigger and stronger than even the most horrific storms that we find surrounding us, things that are unexplainable, things that have no reason, and things that even a Christianese verse out of context telling us that all things work together for good won't satisfy. When those storms hit, we need something bigger than psychological encouragement. We need the truth that life has conquered death. We're entering a section of Mark in which the focus again becomes Jesus' authority. We will see three sections of authority. First, authority over chaotic creation. Then authority over demonic rebellion next week. And then authority over the brokenness of humanity the following week. This morning, we're going to see the authority that Christ has over chaotic creation, a creation that has been twisted and contorted to the point that it seems at times to do the bidding of the destroyer rather than the creator. All you have to do is turn on the news and see what's going on with the fires in Australia. And it seems that the destroyer is at work, not the life giver. But as we will see, this is not left undone. God speaks to us in this story and gives us hope and strength for those moments that can't seem to be stilled. In those trials that may never calm in this life, we can be reassured that Jesus has authority over a chaotic creation. That's the title for the sermon today. Jesus has authority over a chaotic creation. So let's read our section for this morning from Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. And we're going to take a look at what it's telling us. Verse 35, on that day... When evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, uh, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. Before we dig right into this text, let's place ourselves into the mindset that looks at the whole of the Bible in its cultural context to paint the background for the understanding that we have here. First, let's take a look at the biblical themes of shalom, or order, and chaos. 
The biblical themes of shalom or order and chaos. To do this well, we need to go back to the mind of the early people that existed even prior to Abraham being called by God to father the nation of Israel. You see, Abraham came from a place that was known as Mesopotamia. And so Abraham had to be um, molded a bit by that culture, even though he followed Yahweh and stepped out of that culture. And in the world of ancient Near East religion, we have to remember that there were similar stories of origin to that of the Bible. I find that Christians often freak out when they find this out. Oh no, oh, does that mean ours is right or wrong or what, what? Well, no, don't worry about that, okay? The Bible is truth. If you have a problem with that, you can go to Young Adults Group and Seth can teach you why that's not a problem. Okay, the Bible is truth. But these other stories, while not inspired truth, still help us to understand the people of the day and most importantly, how they used symbolism to communicate, how they used literary genres to communicate. And core to their worldview was that chaos and evil came from the deep, from the sea. This was the cosmology of the people of the Old Testament. This was the world that they viewed, this image on the screen. They viewed that the earth was, uh, the land was basically in the midst of this great deep, and from that deep came all evil, all chaos, all demonic spirits that worked against the good creator. This was the cosmology. Hans, you might say, well, how, how, how is this the cosmology? If God told them, if God gave them the Bible, why didn't it change to what we know today is fact, right? What we know today is the earth and the universe. Guys, God's not going to change them in that moment so that they understand everything. He's going to use their understanding and men in that moment as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit to give truth through the symbolism and literary styles that they used. So don't freak out. If we look at one of those original creation stories, the Enuma Elish, for example, which is the Mesopotamian creation account from the area where Abraham originated, we see these same themes of order and chaos. In that story, the Enuma Elish, the chief Canaanite god, Baal, battles against the sea god, Yom, to bring order over chaos. When Baal is able to conquer Yom, he proclaims, Sea, S-E-A, Sea, verily is dead, Baal rules. In Mesopotamian mythology, Yom is often presented as another name, Lotan, a twisting serpent who comes out of the sea. Where do you think the idea of sea monsters came from? A picture of chaos on the minds of the ancient Near East people was consolidated into this image, this mythical creature of a serpent that came up out of the sea. This is where the imagery of Leviathan comes from in the Old Testament. These views of the cosmos and the spiritual beings behind it help us to understand some of the more bizarre verses of Scripture. Here's one, for example, Isaiah 27.1. We've tried so hard in our postmodern scientific world to say, oh no, Leviathan is a whale, or Leviathan is a crocodile, or you know, to mold these. But guys, this is ancient Near East literature, and see what it says in Isaiah 27.1. In that day, the day of the Lord, Yahweh with his hand, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What this is saying in the genre of the day is God will bring order to conquer over chaos. 
This verse is speaking of Yahweh and his eventual overthrow of all chaotic powers and all evil. You see, the theme of order vanquishing chaos was one that was foundational to the Hebrew view of the world. And when God did this, the fullness of shalom, of wholeness, of restoration, of renovation, of peace would come. One theologian, Greg Boyd, in his book, God at War, says this about the themes of chaos and order being at war. He says, this theme was appropriated by the ancient Hebrews and incorporated into their inspired tradition, though much of its explicit mythological trappings were left aside. It constitutes the most fundamental way Yahweh's battle against cosmic forces was expressed in the Old Testament. So it's not that there will literally be a sea monster that comes out of the sea and God with a literal sword goes stab, but this was literary genre and symbolism saying God, order, will conquer chaos, evil. It makes sense then, doesn't it, that when Abraham went to write down the truth of the creation account as an apologetic against the false gods and pagan religions, that he used similar genre of writing because it made sense to people. In today's world, if you want to get something out, do you use a scroll and a feather pen? Does anyone do that in here? No, what do you use? Your cell phone, tweets. Instagram, email, text, you used the literary genre of the day. And so Abraham used this same thing. He used a similar genre of writing, a creation epic that has as its main antagonist the enemy, Hasatan, the adversary of God, pictured as a what? Serpent, an agent of chaos. Satan is the chaos monster in the creation epic of the Bible. But even before that, notice at the beginning of Genesis 1-1 what's going on. Take a look at Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Knowing that they viewed that chaos and evil came up out of the what? The deep, the water. Look at what Genesis 1, 1 through 2 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. What's that kind of sound like? Chaos. And darkness was over the face of the deep. The word in the Hebrew there has many connotations. It means darkness, evil, a destruction of what is ordered, okay? Deconstruction of what is ordered. It was over the face of the what? The deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The words without form and void are Hebrew words tohu vabohu. Everybody say tohu vabohu. (laughs) Tohu vabohu. Yeah, that's great. And those words are only used, that phrase is only used in one other passage in Jeremiah chapter 4 where God is speaking through Jeremiah to tell Judah that their sin and rebellion against God would result in their complete destruction. To do so, he uses an apocalyptic poetry, one that one commentator calls a scene of deconstruction, a scene of decreation. These words are meant to capture a disorder and a decreation. You see, creation at this point in Genesis 1-1 was tohu vabohu, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. Now again, to put ourselves in the mind of the early Near East people, remember that the deep was the place from which chaos, specifically chaos monsters, or evil gods came. To others in the Near East, these were real entities that needed to be feared. But according to the account of the Hebrews, look at what happens to the water. First, the spirit of Yahweh hovers over it as if it's nothing. And to be over it is to be in power and authority over it. 
God right away has authority over the powers of chaos. And what is the rest of Genesis 1? Genesis 1 is the ordering of chaos. Every single point, he says that he orders it, he creates, he builds, and then he calls it what? Good, not evil, not chaotic. God has authority over the very thing that the surrounding people groups in the Mesopotamia used to describe chaos and evil. Now you might say, Hans, then was it a literal account? Well, I personally believe so, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, is that the Hebrews, Moses, as he wrote, was telling the rest of the people group specifically, guys, this is who Yahweh is. Whether or not it happened point one, point two, day one, day two, what the point is, is that Yahweh is better than your gods. Yahweh conquers your gods. Yahweh thinks your gods are weak and disordered. That's the point. This imagery of God's power over the forces of chaos and evil is expressed throughout the rest of the Old Testament using this ancient Near East imagery. To dismiss this is to miss out on much of the Old Testament. We saw this in our psalm this morning, Psalm 29, 3 through 4. The voice of Yahweh is over the what? Waters, the God of glory thunders, Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh, the Lord, is full of majesty. We see it more prominently in Psalm 74. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff, the evil one, the adversary? Is the enemy to revile your name forever, the accuser there? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now pause there for a second. What's he talking about when he says, you divided the sea by your might? Come on, guys, you learned it in Sunday school. The Exodus, the Red Sea. Do you guys remember sea monsters in that story? No, why on earth is he combining the Exodus with sea monsters? Because in the midst of that, there was an evil force fighting against the Israelites, and the the author of this psalm is using symbolism to say the evil behind the army of the Egyptians was destroyed. He says, you gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours is also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. What's this sound like? God is the God of order. You see, the pagan people, they worshipped the lights in the heavens and the suns and the water. But the Hebrews come along and say, guys, you're missing the point. Yahweh is the God of order and creation. This imagery was so well known that we even see it as far forward in the first century church where the apostle John uses it to describe the activity of Satan in the midst of the Gentile nations of the earth as they persecute God's people. This is from Revelation 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. What's this sound like? A sea monster with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. For many of us, this is a worldview with which we are unfamiliar. How many of you today, like your understanding of the Bible just cracked and you're like, what do I do with this? How many of you? Go ahead, raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah, I didn't get this in my felt 
you know, drawings in class. <laughs> sea monsters, I thought that was mythology. I thought Leviathan was a crocodile, that's what I was told, right? No, guys, this is the truth of what the Old Testament uses. At the core of the Hebrew worldview was the idea that the creator God, Yahweh, the God that had saved Israel in the Exodus, was the God of order. And when his creation was acting in rebellion against him, it was doing so at the behest and command of the chaos monster, the adversary of God that had pulled the creation into disorder and chaos. To see the chaos monster as a sea monster is no different than us seeing a dude in red pajamas holding a pitchfork with horns. We look at that and we say, that is what? That's the devil, Satan. Do you guys ever see him described with red pajamas and a pitchfork in here? No, us displaying him as that symbol would be just as weird to the ancient Hebrews as them displaying him as a chaos monster coming out of the sea. But it's imagery. So at every turn, the Hebrew writers present Yahweh as the God of order, fighting against the false demonic beings sowing disorder. Think for a moment of Yahweh's battle against the false gods of the Egyptians in the Exodus. His turning the Nile to blood and back again was a direct attack against the Egyptian false god of the Nile. His manipulation of the Red Sea to hold it back for the Israelites. All of these statements about the fact that Yahweh, the creator God, is so powerful that he can simply command the chaos to still. This is from Psalm 77, 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Right before service, somebody's car alarm was going out there, and I started to walk towards the door, and it stopped, and Rodney looked at me, and it said, it saw you coming. <laughs> That's right, car alarm. The waters, the chaos, it looks at God and goes, oh, man. It stills itself. The foundational view of the Hebrew people was that in a world of chaos, the creator God was the one working towards a restoration of order, of shalom. And at the same time, this power is pictured in the midst of an ongoing battle where God has allowed the destructive free will of his creating, created beings to cause disorder. He's allowed it so that he can lovingly allow us in our free will to decide whether we will follow him or not. And guys, I'm not discussing sovereignty or whether or not he chooses us. None of that. That's not the point today. He allows this disorder to happen so that he might know those that are truly his own. And the Genesis account seeks not to explain where disorder, evil, and chaos came from, but it merely accepts that it exists. And as a response, it proclaims the first of many biblical statements that Yahweh is the God who is fighting against chaos and will eventually conquer it. He is the one whose mission is to bring forth shalom in the midst of his creation. Shalom is a word roughly translated, translated in English as peace, but it is a word that means so much more. It means so much more than the mere absence of conflict, which is how we usually think of peace. That's not a true peace. Shalom is a word that means safety, security, Justice, trust, wholeness, restoration, redemption, and unity. The Hebrew God is a God of shalom, not of chaos. 
Understanding the themes of order and chaos and the imagery that is pictured in the sea from which chaos originates in the mind of the Hebrews, this will give us what we need to see the point of Mark's story today. So, after the longest introduction in the history of man, let's now take a look back at Mark and we're going to see Jesus has authority over chaos because he is God. That's the point of our story today. Jesus has authority over chaos because he is God. Let's reread just the first couple of verses in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and 36. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. Mark gives us, for him especially, because he condenses things so much, he gives us a great amount of detail to set this story. Jesus and his closest followers and disciples have had a busy day of teaching, and Jesus has been teaching in a boat near the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and requests that he and his disciples go to the other side of the lake. The boat most likely looks something like this. So they take off immediately. But as soon as they leave, they fall prey to what was common on the lake, a great windstorm. Now, this was a normal phenomenon that fishermen on the lake knew about. That's why they usually stayed close to the shore. The lake had two valleys on the west that act as wind tunnels funneling wind into the lake. There are also downdrafts of cool air from the Golan Heights meeting warm air from the lake, which was below sea level. And these led to waves about as high as me, about seven feet high, right? I'm 6'10", about seven feet. We know from archaeological finds that the boats, like this one that's shown on the screen, are very shallow. And if you mix this boat with high waves on a sea that's eight miles across, and you throw in the Hebrew mindset of the sea, and water being the place from which chaos and destruction originates, you have a recipe for total hysterical fear. And just as a freebie, guys, this is a great thing to bring up when talking to Mormons. Mormons believe that the lost tribes of Israel went across the Atlantic Ocean to land in South America. What that shows is that Joseph Smith had no stinking clue about the Hebrew mindset or culture and wrote it in that they traveled across the deep to get to the other side, right? Just a freebie for you. There's no way that could happen. They were scared to death of water, okay? So these guys, they go across the Sea of Galilee and you have this recipe for total hysterical fear because they're in the middle of a Uh, of a storm of chaos in the middle of of the deep. It's a lake, but it's still deep. So let's take a look now at Mark chapter 4, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?' And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, many people look at our story in Mark today, and they think they're trying, that he's trying to compare it to the story of Jonah. Jonah was asleep in the boat, so was Jesus. I see this a lot in, uh, in conversations and in commentaries. Now, let's take a look at that, because I do think that it's important to take a look at it, because I think there might be a reference a bit to Jesus in the story of Jonah, but it's not with Jonah. Let's take a look to Jonah, 
Um, chapter 1, verse 4. And it's a small enough book that you may want to look it up in your table of contents. But it's right after Obadiah and right before Micah. Go ahead and go to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 4. You guys know the story. Uh, Jonah was a prophet, and God said to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, no thanks. God said, go. Jonah said, no. Good job. You guys all listened in Sunday school. All right, so he fled to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction, rebelling against God. And so what's God do in Jonah 1.4? It says, but Yahweh, the Lord, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, okay, so that the ship threatened to break up. So in this case, it's not necessarily the evil demonic spirits doing the work. God uses the power of the sea to do his own bidding, okay? Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, okay? So there's this discussion of paganism, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Okay, that's the only connection point. Was Jesus in rebellion against the Father? Was he going in a ship to do the opposite of God's will? No, there's literally no connection to Jonah other than they both slept really well, okay? And jo the people say, well, God and Jonah, they must have both had great faith because they were asleep in the midst of a storm. Did Jonah, was he showing great faith here? No, not at all, okay? So Jonah had gone down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Parents, you can use that with your kids next time they sleep in. <laughs> Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Okay, the Spanish Inquisition. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. Remember that anytime you see L-O-R-D in caps, behind it is the Hebrew name Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh. Okay, what's this story saying? The other gods, how powerful are they? Zero. But Yahweh, how powerful is he? Let's see. They called out. Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and notice what happens. The sea ceased from its raging. It was stilled. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. How did they react? Were they excited or did they what? They feared. Notice that. The reaction was, we feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. The only comparison, as I said, is that both of them were heavy sleepers. It's my submission to you that Mark is not trying to cast Jesus as a better Jonah at all, not even in the ballpark. If the author of Mark was trying to compare Jesus to anyone in the first chapter of Jonah, who would he actually be comparing him to? To God, who has such control over the forces of nature that he is able to use the sea to bring Jonah to a place of broken submission and at the same time immediately calm it 
when its purposes are fulfilled. Now, in our story, Mark actually helps us with this even further. Go back to Mark and take a look at Jesus' words. Jesus says two phrases. And usually, because we think of Jesus as this kind, loving guy in Birkenstocks floating along the ground, right? Peace, be still, he says. Is that what he said? No, the word in Greek for peace that we think of, peace, is uh, irini, okay? And this is not the word that's used in the Greek. What this is in the Greek is Jesus assertively rebuking the lake as if it were an enemy combatant. The wooden Greek is, be silent, be muzzled. A current day translation might have Jesus saying, shut your mouth, shut up. Can I say that Jesus said that? (laughs) Absolutely, that is the literal translation of what Jesus was saying here. Now if I scared you, I'm sorry, but I was trying to get it across to you what was going on. The surrounding stories of Jesus interacting with demon spirits show us that Jesus is indeed rebuking the forces of chaos as he was other demons. Take a look just back in Mark 125. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Jesus speaks to them then in Mark 440 and notice what he says. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus poses the question of faith that might be better interpreted. Do you not yet understand that I am God? Come to fight against the forces of chaos on your behalf. And they respond and notice that it is not in rejoicing that they weren't dead or in congratulations to Jesus for doing this cool party trick. Notice how they respond. Verse 41, they were filled with great what? Fear, similar to those sailors in Jonah. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Those sailors in Jonah, part of their fear was that they finally had the realization that their small g gods were pipsqueaks. But the true God was who? Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Jonah. Similarly here, they have fear because they realize this man standing before them, who they called in verse 38, just a mere teacher, is actually who? God, Yahweh, come in the flesh. They say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They know the answer, but Mark poses it this way so that the hearers of the gospel might have to ask themselves, wait a minute, yeah, who is this guy? They had begun the boat ride with their teacher, but finished with a new understanding of the authority of Christ. Jesus, they must have thought, has authority over chaos because he is God. So here, Mark is again bringing his hearers close so that they might wrestle with the same question we've been repeating over and over again. The hearers of the gospel in that first century would have known the general story of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. But here they are confronted with the question of who he is to them. This man who calmed the raging sea would eventually become the one who would die on a cross and resurrect three days later. Who was this guy? And what did all this mean? Now we have the amazingly blessed position of 2020 hindsight and we know what it means. Christ was the one who was bringing peace and order, and shalom to a world enslaved by the chaos monster, the adversary of God. 
Do any of you feel like I do when you watch the news and you see nothing but chaos and you wonder, God, are you in control? Does anyone else wonder that? When you see natural uh, disasters and chaos, when you see men in power that anyone with open eyes can go, that person should not be in power. Why is he there? Dictators who slaughter their people. Mass suicide, mass terrorism. These things are chaotic. We are a world enslaved by the chaos monster, the adversary of God. Luckily, our good friend Paul the Apostle helps us to understand what all this means, and he gives us an amazing amount of hope. You see, in his writings, what we find, and in all of the New Testament, is that Jesus is our peace and will bring about the fullness of shalom. Jesus is our peace and will bring about the fullness of shalom. You see, the biblical story, as we saw earlier, is that God is a God of order, not of chaos. And Paul echoes this idea in his closing comments to the church at Rome when he calls God the God of peace. We see this also in a simple comment to the Corinthian church. He says, guys, God is not a a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And he tells them, in your church service, don't be chaotic, don't run amok, but be ordered. If the body of Christ is to display God, then we are to display order, not chaos. So when this God of peace forms creation, he did so in wholeness and peace and shalom. But we, as mankind, decided to partner, uh, we decided to partner not with God, but with the agent of chaos. And we fought against the wholeness and peace and shalom of God. This is what happened right in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we trusted the adversary of God rather than the God who created us. And this encased us all in the original sin of mankind. When Paul spoke of this in his letter to the Romans, he put it this way. Oop, one too many. None is righteous, he says. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he finishes with these two verses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is what you and I are like when we, in our heart of hearts, remove ourselves from God, tell him he's not our king, and run our lives ourselves. By rebelling against God, we took the way of chaos, not the way of shalom. And not only humans, but all of creation was affected by this cosmic mutiny. And so when you see things happen to amazing people of God, you wonder, how could this be, God? Uh, Just last week, a good uh, professor at Western, a wonderful man who's only nine years older than me, died of a cardiac arrest in the middle of his gym. They couldn't revive him. He's a pastor of a church, a father and a grandfather. He's a wonderful professor of the post-grad program at Western. Gone. Very faithful to God. I found myself crying out, why, God? And in God's grace, this week as I studied, he said chaos. But he reminded me of the truth of where that man is and where he stands right at this moment. 
Because the way of God is not chaos, it's not death, it's life and resurrection. And so when creation that's been affected by this cosmic mutiny rages against us, you see this chaos in front of us on the news. It rained forth in sin. Separation of creation and humanity from the God that created them causes sin and brokenness. It causes separation of mankind from one another as we can't seem to get along even within the church. And the chaos of evil had crept into God's ordered garden and it had left its eternal mark. But the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God is that the creator of God would not be conquered. He wouldn't be stilled. His plan from that moment on was to bring forth restoration in a way that shalom could return, that the chaos monster would actually have his head stepped on, he promises in Genesis, that he will be destroyed, that serpent, that evil, vile chaos monster. Peace and wholeness between God and his creation was promised that it could be put back in place by one who would step on the head of the serpent. And as we will see in Mark, as we continue along in the gospel, this work was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' ministry, his three years on the earth that we're reading about now, was to sound the death knell of chaotic sin and evil on God's creation. But it was Jesus' death on the cross that was the conquering blow to evil. In his death on the cross, Jesus allowed all the forces of evil and chaos and sin to come down upon himself, he even becoming sin himself. He literally became the sacrifice that would take on all of the sin that was, was your and my participation in the reign of chaos. And it seemed for a moment that chaos had overcome once again. But then three days later, Jesus resurrected to new life, proving that something had changed. Chaos and evil and the greatest enemy of order, death itself, had been conquered. Look at how Paul characterizes the work of Jesus in Ephesians 2. Take a look there with me. Why don't you turn there? Ephesians chapter 2. And notice what he calls Jesus. The context of these verses, as we saw a few years ago when we went through Ephesians, weird it's been two years, uh, was, was the specific peace that he had made between the Gentiles and the Jews and how they had become one church in Christ, one new chosen people. But take a look specifically at it, just in the characteristics of what he calls Christ. Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, okay, Gentiles and Jews, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what we are without Christ. If you don't have Christ today, if you have no relationship with him, the sad news, the true news, is that you have no hope. Hans, that's terrible. I thought pastors were supposed to be encouraging. It's the truth. Without Christ, you have no hope. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, of chaos, 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Notice that idea of creation. He took the chaos and created it into order. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now you might say, this is great, Hans. I see what you're getting at. Jesus is our peace in eternity. He saved us in eternity. That's great. But that doesn't help me right now in the tempestuous storm that I'm in. As I'm going through the storms of life, and they don't seem to still. But I want to lovingly push back a bit on you, if that's the case. It is exactly that truth, this truth that Jesus is our peace, that he has died and resurrected and promises us eternal life. It is that peace in the midst of these storms that should bring us hope and calm and comfort right now. You see, for most of human history, Evil and the chaos that shows itself in trials and tribulations was not something to be understood or explained. Even in 1966, when you go back and watch the documentary of the Abervan disaster, there is a, a section in there where it's talking about the people coming to the burial site and mourning, and the, the commentator literally says, no one was asking the question why. But in our culture today, where we think we are God, where we are individualistically calling God to be accountable to us, we believe we have the right to ask why. But that just shows our sin. Only in our contemporary self-centric view of the Bible and Christianity has the view of the church become focused on figuring out how to get around or avoid evil and the chaotic storms that it brings in this early, earthly life. Mankind, as far back as we have written history, accepts that evil exists and that it is a part of life that can't be avoided. If it were, this would be heaven, not earth. Dear brothers and sisters, that is why Jesus Christ and the gospel he brought us is such good news for you and I. To tell you that Jesus psychologically comforts you so that you can just get through bad days, that is to inoculate you against the truth of the gospel, that you are sinners in need of salvation, and that this world is broken by sin and chaos, and we need a king to reign over it. That's the gospel. Not that he makes you have good days. You see, we need to be reminded often that this life is not all there is. In fact, it is nothing in comparison to eternity. It is but a glimpse, a vapor, a breath. And so in humanity past, the realization that we would not live forever was standing at everyone's front door, ensuring that humanity reckoned with the matters of sin and righteousness, heaven and hell, eternity with God or away from him. The focus in that kind of worldview is not how Jesus can serve us in this life to make it more comfortable. The focus was and still should be what Christ has done for us to free us from the bondage of our fleshly sin and that he has given us eternal peace. The hope of those in the Old Testament was that God would act to one day free his creation from the bondage of chaos and sin. 
The prophet Isaiah pictured it like this. Notice how he symbolizes the earth rejoicing at its restoration to order. This is Isaiah 55, 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, God's word, be that uh, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. No longer will the mountains come down and destroy life, but the mountains and the hills will break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Chaos will be changed into beautiful creation. And he says, it shall make a name for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Our reading from Revelation this morning tells us that because of the work of Christ, inaugurated in his death, resurrection, and ascension, we can be assured that he will one day finish the work and restore all creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Guys, this is not meant to be read literally. I've, I've had people come up to me who are big into end times and they go, so what's the deal with the sea disappearing? I love the coast. That's going to be so sad. <laughs> Guys, don't read Revelation literally. It's not meant to be read literally. The sea, chaos, was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Do you guys know what Jerusalem means? Its base is Shalom, the city of peace coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Guys, this is not a psychological hit in the arm. This is the truth that chaos will be removed. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Because of his sacrifice and resurrection and victory, Jesus has brought us peace with God and one another. And one day he will return to put in place the fullness of shalom. This truth should be the bedrock of hope and endurance regardless of what comes against us. So the first question I have for you today, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, do you, dear friend, do you believe Jesus is God? Does your life dictate and speak the fact that you believe Jesus is God and King? Or do you exist in an apathetic mental ascent that, yeah, Jesus is a cool dude, he's a good teacher, maybe he died for me on the cross? Or does your life dictate that he is your God and King? If not, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day he calls you to bend the knee and cry out as those men on the boat did, God, save me, save me. And he will answer you, not that he doesn't care, but that he has been doing work in your life and in creation to bring about your salvation. If you're making that declaration for the first time today, or maybe you realize that you need to recommit your life to Christ, 
Our elders would love to talk with you in the back during the second set of worship. They'd love to talk to you about Christ as God, Lord, Savior, and King. Please go back and talk with them. But secondly, though, we must reckon with the question of what our hope is based upon. Maybe you believe Jesus is God. Maybe you know he is and you have a relationship with him. You are a converted Christian. But the question is, what is your hope based on? When we are hit with the trials of life in an evil and chaotic world, are we basing our faith in Christ upon if he can make the pain or discomfort pass in the moment? Or are we basing it on the cross and the resurrection? Are we, like Charles Wesley, like the people of Abervan, putting our trust not in the immediate fixing of our broken world, but in the eternal peace that God has promised through his son, Jesus Christ? Perhaps you today are going through a trial like you have never gone through before, whether that be health issues or the death of a loved one, miscarriage. Maybe you feel just intimately alone. Turn to Christ and remember that he is the one who has authority over chaos. And while the storms of this life may continue, remember that he has assured you that if your faith is in him, he will cause the chaos to cease as you enter the eternal rest of your maker. Jesus does calm the storms of this life, but he does it in a far more glorious and majestic way than you or I could ever imagine. Sometimes he does it with the reminder that his son died, resurrected, became enthroned, and poured out his spirit. I want to finish this morning with the words of that hymn from Charles Wesley, and I want us to listen to it, but I want us to listen and read Charles Wesley's reliance upon the saving work of Christ as the cornerstone of his hope. And remember, even those people at Abervan, as they cried out and what they rested their hope upon. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the near waters roll. While the tempest still is hide, hide me, is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed, all my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick and lead the blind. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Plenteous grace with thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Make and keep me pure within. Thou of life the fountain art. Freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity.